0: Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this
1: information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, have you ever climbed the Millennium Wheel naked? Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's where I'm recording from right now.
2: (laughs) It was cold. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Is <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a wind it's, it's not me naturally no well it, we've got a funny film to talk about this week but um first i want to give credit to the man returning to the podcast um valiantly stepping back in perhaps one of our quickest returning guests <laughs> um he of course joined us for the parallax view Back on the show, Scott Mendelson, film critic and box office pundit for Forbes.
2: Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm actually gonna have stuff to write about this weekend. We're actually getting a real movie. Yeah. Uh.
1: <laughs> We're recording this on the oh, eve yes. of, you know, Batman opening, the Batman, and I believe host uh, Scott is going to see it uh, this evening, or sorry, tomorrow oh, I morning. I should say. Days. I
2: saw it last week.
1: You saw it last week, but yes. host Scott oh, is I'm yeah sorry. going tomorrow morning. Yeah, we got two Scots here. <laughs> it's gonna be yeah.
2: Spoiler, Bruce Wayne is Batman.
1: Oh, ruined. Yeah. I'll cancel my ticket. Uh,
0: that's it what, what what's the point in watching it now? <laughs> uh, do
2: do his parents die as well? Uh they don't show it. No, you don't have to watch that again. Oh, thank heavens. That's discarded with you know, dialogue exposition.
0: Well, you know, we, when we had you on the show the first time, before we talk about maybe the film we're talking about this week, we spoke a lot about cinema and what's going on at the time. Around about that time, No Time to Die had just come out. It was, it was sort of getting back people back into the cinemas. A lot of things have changed since then. We've had a, we've had a multiverse appear and uh, maybe changed the game a wee bit. So I just kind of want to ask you, you know, what's changed? How are things looking when it comes to people going back to the cinemas?
2: Well. There was an you know, there was an Omnicron surge around November, December that, you know, obviously made an impact, but as we saw as we've been seeing since May of 2021 with The Quiet Place Part Two, the films that were always going to be hits, people are still showing up, more or less. Um, there is one exception I'll get to in a second. Uh and obviously, you know, Spider-Man No Way Home has made a one point almost one point nine billion dollars without a penny from China. So Clearly, there's an audience for theatrical tentpoles. Uh, Now, as for any everything else, well, that's been a problem since before COVID. For the last six or seven years, as more audiences have become accustomed to streaming services and VOD platforms, and more affordable, um home entertainment systems, you know, the TV and the sound bar that won't set you back an arm and a leg necessarily. And especially if you're someone that lives in a town without a gajillion high quality theater options, it might be beneficial in every which way but one to just wait. You know, what used to be 90 days, now it's anywhere from 17 to 45 uh, to watch that film at home in the comfort of home on your big screen TV. Um, and I get that, you know, that's something that, that, uh, studios have been struggling and theaters have been struggling with for a while now, which is that, few, you know, uh, uh, ticket, you know, before COVID bo- overall box office was up, it's been steadily rising for as long as I've been alive. Um, you know, a couple of years here and there, up and down and up and down, but, you know, and even the tickets sold staff that everyone like, oh, you know, inflation and so many few people are going to the movies. and. and but, you know, the stat I always like to throw out is that in 1993, that was the year of Jurassic Park, last action hero, the fugitive, Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, they sold about 1.2 billion tickets in North America. Uh, in 2018, which was a year dominated by Black Panther, Avengers, Infinity War, um, Aquaman, uh, Incredibles 2, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, uh, it sold 1.1 billion worth of tickets. Oh, excuse me, 1.1 billion tickets. So, yeah, that's a drop by, you know, 100 million over. But that's also over 25 years, during which time we've had from VHS to DVD to streaming and VOD. We've had all manner of Internet distractions. And you've had, you know, ticket prices rising to the, you know, to the cost of inflation while rate wages have unfortunately been relatively stagnant. Um, I do, to a certain extent, blame consumers for not being as active about seeing you know good crowd-pleasing movie movies for adults the way they used to back in the day i mean it's it's not that oh no the oscars are never nominating anything popular boo-hoo let's give spider-man a best picture nomination it's this that you know in a foregone time something like west side story would have been a modest hit right um you know, something like Dune would have been less of a shocking surprise or a borderline miracle just because it didn't crash and burn. Um, not only did it do better than I expected, I think it did better than it would have done in non-COVID times. It was sort of sold as the great theatrical savior, you know, of the moment, and it was a pretty good movie. Most people liked it, yada yada yada. Um, but you know, y- you can't complain that hollywood only makes superhero movies remakes and cartoons if that's all you consumer choose to see in theaters now again if you're somebody that you know you're not on twitter all the time and you just view movie going as a thing to do with your family or with a date and you're not you know you were never going to run out and see something like belfast um but now what we're seeing is a larger and larger percentage of the annual domestic box office being spent on a smaller and smaller portion of overall released movies. So, you know, in, and I'm going off memory, so I apologize. You know, in 2011, the top six movies of the year made up around 12% of the overall box office. Um, I'm sorry, 16% of the overall box office. Um, by 2018, it was 25% in 2019 which was an unusual year because disney was having a fire sale you know they wanted they were throwing out all their a-plus entries of their biggest franchises a because bob Iger was allegedly retiring and they wanted to you know, him to go out you know he wanted to go out in a bang and b because disney plus was about to launch and they wanted those titles to be debuting on disney plus throughout 2020 um even so the top 10 movies of the uh 2019 year, seven of which were Disney, one of which was Disney-adjacent Spider-Man Way Far From Home, uh, one of which was a Warner Brothers comic book movie. Uh, The only sort of outlier that wasn't a Disney film or a comic Marvel DC film was Sony's Jumanji The Next Level, which was the 10th biggest movie of the year with $310 million. And to show the widening gulf, the next biggest movie was It Chapter 2 with $211 million. Um, we've seen that before, where for m- most of 2016, you basically had movies that had done like 330 and above, in films that were struggling to get to 150. Um, and that's frankly not to toot my own horn here because i'm sure there's other people out there that know but that's when i first started noticing that something was very wrong in terms of people not showing up for studio programmers the star-driven high-concept vehicles i'm not talking about artsy fartsy films or films that you have to drive an hour and a half to see at your local indie theater you know more power to you if you have the money and desire to do such a thing but i'm talking like you know mainstream pictures like uh you know like west side story like uh You know the darkest minds, the spy who dumped me, uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. You know these are what would have been, you know, mainstream entertainment that would have been seen by people who either don't see the tentpoles, or they see the tentpoles and they make time for the other stuff too. And that audience basically gravitated entirely to almost entirely to streaming about six years ago. And COVID has only made that worse because COVID gave the studios an excuse to prioritize streaming. Wall Street is now on a streaming kick where, you know, I would argue a dollar made from streaming is worth more to them than $10 made anywhere else. Um, So now you have Disney being run by Bob Chapek, who, without getting into good and evil here, I mean, he's basically said that, you know, for him streaming or Disney is basically Disney plus the theme parks and cruise ships, you know, and Marvel and Star Wars. Everything else fits into those boxes. Um, And it is more valuable for him right now, at least he thinks so, at least Wall Street thinks so. I mean, I I have my thoughts for something like Turning Red, which is terrific, by the way, um, to get a lot of streaming viewership right off the bat at the expense of whatever money might be made from theatrical. So that puts theaters in a terrible position, because now even the stuff that might have been expected to boost the box office isn't either not going to theatrical or it's dealing with much shorter windows, which is a very long way of answering why AMC and Regal are judging more for the Batman this weekend. Because there's nothing left. (laughs) I mean, Turning Red was supposed to open next weekend. Uh, Operation Fortune got delayed indefinitely, that was supposed to be the 18th. Nothing came out last weekend because, hey, why open a week before Batman? So, you have nothing a week before and three weeks after the Batman. I had a
1: question for you because, you know, we're a spy movie podcast, we tackle spy movies every week. And one issue that keeps being raised again and again, and maybe you have noticed this yourself, is that female-driven spy films have not been performing too well. We had the 355 opened earlier this year. And you go backwards. You know, Atomic Blonde opened the year, I believe, that the movie we're going to talk about this week opened and didn't perform particularly well in relation to, like, a John Wick. And it's kind of been this ongoing trend. What do you kind of
2: attribute that to? Well, first of all, a lot of them aren't that good. And unfortunately, because fewer of them get made, there's more pressure on each one to represent all things. The other thing is, frankly, the perpetually online that claim that everyone wants more diverse movies everyone wants more inclusive films which is valid for an artistic reason you get better movies more often than not commercially most audiences don't care and i would argue unfortunately a lot of the people talking about that only care when it's in relation to a movie they were already gonna see you know they'd rather talk about you know LGBTQIA representation, Star Wars or Marvel or whatever, versus showing up for something like Love Simon or Blockers, uh, when they're you know that, that are what they claim to want, um, and because fewer people are see- more people are seeing a much fewer portion of movies, even the films that Hollywood has started to make that are a bit more inclusive than they used to be, only by default, nobody's showing up. You know, 20 years ago, people would have shown up to Wonder Woman and Atomic Blonde. Now they only show up to Atomic Blonde. To be fair to that one, A, it's very good. B, it did do about 100 million worldwide, which was disappointing, even on a $30 million budget. But that was about what the first John Wick made. It wasn't until the sequel came out that, you know, I mean, the, the jumps that John Wick has taken. I mean, I've never seen anything like that in all my years of covering this in terms of from sequel, from movie to sequel to sequel. Um, and a lot of those, unfortunately, a lot of those films have ended up on streaming. A Gunpowder Milkshake was supposed to be a theatrical release. They got sold to Netflix. Kate was always a Netflix release. Ava was the the or Ava whatever the uh, Jessica Chastain picture was basically on VOD for ten seconds, and people showed up on Netflix, which you know is a double problem because when a theatrical version like the Three Five Five comes out and it's not very good audience are like, why should I pay movie, You know, even aside from pandemic concerns, why should I pay movie theater money to see this at home, in theaters when I can just watch Gunpowder Milkshake at home? Or because I, I forgot to see Blake or Blake Lively's the uh, rhythm section, which I quite liked, but whatever. You know, when it was in theaters, I can now pay $4 to rent that at home. And I, you know, if I'm remotely aware of the industry, I know that the three five five will be available to rent or purchase online in anywhere from seventeen to thirty to forty five days. Um. So yeah, it's it's very unfortunate that Hollywood only started getting its act together in terms of diversity and inclusivity after fifteen years of white guy you're the special heroic journey fantasy action films. And after the star system, it can be completely annihilated to the point where everyone and their mother shows up to Black Panther, but nobody gives a shit about 21 Bridges, a film that bombed in theaters. But now that it's on Netflix, people are watching it. So people will watch it as, and this is you know a problem overall, people will watch what they claim to want. Either A, if it's in something they were already going to see, you know, a big franchise or something, a superhero movie, a Marvel DC superhero movie, or it's free. And by that, I mean, it's on a streaming service that they've already paid for. Um, And it's not a new problem. COVID has made it worse, but it is a huge problem. And it affects every impact, every facet of the theatrical film industry.
0: Well, speaking of multiverses and speaking of failed box office uh, receipts, I suggest we maybe move into this week's film just a little bit. So, if those paying attention when you last joined us, Scott, towards the end of the episode, I believe, or maybe it was afterwards it was recorded, but you made mention of this week's film. And I wrote that down because I thought there's no way on earth a proper film critic like Scott Mendelssohn would be requesting this film. But lo and behold, you are here. Yes. And I'm sure you have a lot to say. You have a, I imagine you have a lot to say about this <laughs> film. So, Cam, Cam, I'm, I'm dying to know what are we doing this week.
1: We're tackling 2017's Triple X Return of Xander Cage with Vin Diesel back in the saddle. Well,
0: <laughs> there's, there's just so much to say here, isn't there? Hey, you
2: didn't have to call my bluff. No? I mean, I called yours um, I, I will say, I, you know, before we get too off, I do always feel that, you know whether you're a film critic, whether you're a film nerd or whatever, I'd like to think, to a certain extent, we're all defined by the weird movies that we like more than everybody else.
0: Yeah.
2: Anyway, carry on.
0: No, no. Well, I, I, I was making jokes about this film before I watched it. We'll, we'll just say that. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that I, I may not stick to that. But I hadn't seen this film in cinemas. So I'm, I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the problem why this film didn't particularly make so much money. I called out for Diesel to come back and he eventually came back and I never went. So more fool me.
2: To be fair, you probably spent your money on M night Shyamalan's original. That's kind of complicated because of the teaser thing at the end, uh horror thriller split, which let's be honest, we'd be better off if more of those films broke out regardless, which I did see in cinema. So you're actually right. Um, here's the weird thing about triple X It bombed in North America. It made about I think it made basically what the first Triple X made on opening weekend, about forty-five million dollars from a nineteen million dollar opening weekend. It did okay overseas. It didn't go bonkers bananas, but it opened in China like a month later and made 159 excuse me, 164 million dollars in China, becoming basically one of the only big budget or even remotely big budget Hollywood movies. To so overperform in China that it took it from a flop to a hit because it made three eighty five to three forty five worldwide on an eighty five million dollar budget now it's a little complicated because Hollywood gets less of that money from China versus tickets in other territories, but there is a fourth one in development, but I, I that was five years ago. I think the moment has passed um but yeah, it was one of those weird there were a handful of Big Hollywood movies that did really, really well in China. Which plenty of Hollywood movies do really well in China, but most of them are the ones that do well in North America and everywhere else. That's you know, frankly, a common misconception. Um, but you know, Resident Evil: The Final Chapter did like 25, 27 domestic. It made like ten bucks everywhere else. Did a hundred and fifty-nine million in China for a three-twelve total on a forty million dollar budget. Which, by the way, is... Who paid money to go and see that film? Who? Why? Well, I saw it in a press screening. But no, I mean, I I respect the Resident Evil series for what it was, but I did not like the the last film. I thought it was probably the weakest of the Paul W.S. Anderson ones by default. I I would agree. I like the two ones that he didn't direct. I have no problem with those. For, again, what they are. I mean, it's... Yeah. Well... I
0: I think, I suppose Scott you were quite passionate about this film and I want to get to that in a second but Cam did
1: you go and watch this film in the cinema um I did yeah I actually was uh <laughs> I guess the one contributing to the spy fund there Scott <laughs> oh Scott um so uh yeah I did and I I did enjoy it although I remember at the time being maybe more dismissive than I felt on the rewatch of it, sort of being at the time as like the Vin Diesel midlife crisis project. Oh God, yes. But uh, yeah, <laughs> and we can talk way more about that going forward in the review. You're but I was, um, <laughs> I was, I think more dismissive. But I did have fun
0: with a lot of the action in the movie. And, and to answer sort of Scott's point just before about the, a, a potential fourth film, we actually have an interview later this week with Scott Frazier, who wrote this film. And we get a little bit of information of uh, potentially what may happen with the franchise going forward. So looking out for that on Friday. But here is your letterbox.com synopsis. And by golly, is it a long one? (sighs) Triple X, return of Xander Cage. There are no more patriots, just rebels and tyrants. Extreme athlete turned government operative, Xander Cage comes out of self-imposed exile thought to be long dead, and is set on a collision course with a deadly alpha warrior Shang and his team in a race to recover a sinister and seemingly unstoppable weapon known as Pandora's Box, or the Transmuka. Recruiting an all-new group of thrill-seeking cohorts, Xander finds himself enmeshed in a deadly conspiracy that points to collusion at the highest levels of world governments.
1: Good for you! Mr. Hardy for making it through that.
0: <laughs>
1: Someone should pay me for VO
0: work, but I, other than that, I mean, that was a I don't know, I, there's a lot of long words in there that I don't think this film necessarily earns, but we'll come back to that. So Cam, I've got my mouth
1: guard in. I'm ready to tackle this. How did we get to Triple X3? Yeah, so, um, you know, as uh, host Scott said, we have an interview this week with Scott Frazier, the writer of the film. So we're going to let him tackle all the -the behind-the-scenes stuff because there was a lot in terms of the production that's just fascinating, frankly, and how much, you know, he was there from beginning to end, kind of like Rich Wilkes was with the original. So really good, just eye on the scene for that film. But, like, the development of this movie was kind of insane in that, like, this movie was announced in 2006 – uh, Vin Diesel announced it to the world and said, okay, people, Xander Cage is going to be back. And this was like a year or so after X State of the Union had underperformed quite drastically. And uh, then it just kind of sat silent for two years. And then in 2008, director Rob Cohen, um, who'd done the original Triple X, said, yep, I'm on board. I'm joining back up with Vin Diesel and team to make you know a sequel to triple x and bring back Xander cage and they were even at the time using the title return of Xander cage as the title so it was there right from 2006 and so they brought in uh terminator 3 and terminator salvation writers john brancato and michael ferris to write the film <laughs> Woo. and uh, slash film re- <laughs> slash film reported that rich wilkes did a polish on the draft which I would like some insight on that. We don't. So he never mentioned that in, our, in his interview with us, but I would like to know if that's the case. Um, and the movie was set up at Sony. Now, a year later, uh, Rob Cohen, who was attached to direct, bailed uh, to go make the medieval action film Medieval. <laughs> so, a movie I think we all fondly remember, right? We all saw that one opening weekend.
2: I, I, I can't even place it.
1: No. It never happened. <laughs> no. It never happened. It was supposed to be a Magnificent Seven in the Middle Ages. The project collapsed, and that was sort of the end. And he said that the reason he bailed on Return of Xander Cage was because he didn't have any confidence that Sony would make the movie. But they did push forward. They hired Erickson Core to direct Triple X Return of Xander Cage. Now, who is Erickson Core? He did the Mark Wahlberg movie Invincible, the football drama. And he'd been a director of photography on movies like Daredevil, The Fast and the Furious, and Payback. And he was going to go on and make that film. And uh, he would ultimately go on to not direct Triple X, but he would go on to make movies like the Point Break remake and uh, Disney's Togo. Which people like
2: Togo from what I heard. Did anyone see Togo? Uh, yes, it's, it's fine. It, it, it brought about false hope during that first year of Disney Plus, when I th- we all thought they were actually going to put out real movies on the service, as opposed to just nonstop inspirational sports biopics.
1: I was I was busy
0: climbing London monuments in the buff at the time.
1: I do think if you had had Ericson Cord direct this, you could have made a lot of like hardcore puns when you're promoting the movie. Yeah. Yeah yeah triple x hardcore i don't know
2: not bad it always befuddles me these films that you think they could make in like a year that end up being in development for like a decade it's crazy and then when they come out there's like this is the movie you could have just made this is absolutely the same movie you could have made 10 years ago if you had just gotten your act together and done it like uncharted is there anything i mean that's there's nothing 2021 ish about that that could have been the exact same movie in 2008 anyway
1: was 2008 when they announced Uncharted? Because I feel like I was hearing about Uncharted forever.
2: Oh, even before that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's... I think I remember hearing about it after Max Payne, ironically. Because obviously, you know, Mark Wahlberg was going to be the star. David O. Russell was going to direct. Yada, yada, yada. Um, and then, yeah, it's been bouncing around ever since. I mean, how long have they been trying to reboot The Crow? <laughs> at, least, at least 11 years. And for what? Excellent
1: question. So, um, in 2010, it was announced that Triple X Return of Xander Cage was going to be a Paramount film. It was switching from Sony to Paramount and it would be shot in 3D. And at this point, Rob Cohen came back. Rob Cohen was uh, back on board to direct the film. And then again, all was silent. And it wasn't until later on down the road that uh, Vin Diesel announced he would return on Instagram and he named DJ Caruso as the director. Can I, can I just jump in? I feel
0: like, just, I want to go back to the Rob Cohen uh, version of uh, it being in 3D. I can just see the title is triple X 3 dd as in double D, as in ladies'
1: boobs. Because it feels like that's the sort of sense of humor we're dealing with here. Well, they did use that title, Scott, for Piranha 3 double D. Oh, I, that was a joke. I, I didn't know that
2: was a real <laughs> oh, no, thing. That's, that. uh
1: that's a, that. that's that's atrocious okay thank you
2: yeah it was <laughs> so the movie if i recall
1: <laughs> moving on yeah so uh dj caruso finally boarded uh this movie around 2014 and he'd done movies like he got his bre- you know kind of his breakthrough in the movie the salton sea in 2002 and did a few things like disturbia and eagle eye with shia LaBeouf. And uh, had done I am number four, which was a bit of a bit of a bomb. But this would have been a, a bigger project to bring him back for. And um, Rob Cohen, I couldn't find any reason he specifically left. But this, you know, around this point he left and did the um, J Lo movie, The Boy Next Door. I don't know if that's why he was busy. Could have been. <laughs> Could have been.
2: That was actually quite profitable. Yeah. I mean, I opened like fifteen million on a four million budget back when people showed up.
1: Yeah. And yeah, and they had a script by writer F. Scott Frazier and he was coming off, he had done in 2013 a spy film called The Numbers Station with John Cusack and a 2016 drama with uh, Nicholas Holt, Anthony Hopkins called Collide. And the only other notable thing I'll mention in terms of, you know, leading into the production was Jet Li was cast um, in the Donnie Yen role and ended up bailing and uh, Scott Frazier goes more in depth on that in our interview with him.
2: Is that when he got started getting sick?
0: Scott doesn't, like, overtly say it in the episode,
1: but if you track the timeline, it does add up. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, because Jet Li did vanish for a while, Yeah, and I remember being almost surprised when he popped up in the Mulan uh,
2: remake. Yeah, and, you know, without being a jerk about it, he still looks very handsome and distinguished, but he looks his age while Jason Scott Lee does not. (laughs) And they're both about the same age, if I recall. Anyway yeah
1: so um you know as um, you know Scott Mendelson said the movie had a budget of 85 domestically 44.9 international 301.2 for a worldwide total of 346 point1 which is actually interesting in comparison to the previous triple X's um, so like the the original triple X did 277 point5 worldwide and triple uh, X2 did um, 71 million worldwide so this was, on a worldwide level, the most profitable. It was just domestically; it did not perform particularly well. Well, can I ask a
0: question? And this is this is mainly to you, Scott, because this is your area of expertise. x Three has sort of hung its hat on hung its hat on a Chinese box office. Yes. I mean, were we not tracking it as further back, or was it, were films just not opening as much? You know, with when Triple X2 came out and Triple and X1,
2: I think the, the extent that the film broke out big in China was partially due to it having actual, you know, a number of, of Asian celebrities in the cast that were actually prominent roles. You know, again, this is getting back to the, you know, people only care when it's something they want to see anyway. And frankly, I think that applies to Chinese audiences that didn't care about Donnie Yen being in a Star Wars movie because they didn't want to see a Star Wars movie. Um, cause that came out in China like a month before this one did. Um, also this, you know, the film was probably what got it off the ground was, you know, Furious 7 making $1.5 billion in early 2015, including a stunning 392 in China. Uh, that franchise of all the Hollywood franchises, that's the one that just does ridiculous business in China. Cause even Fate of the Furious did 393 um for a 1.2 billion dollar total uh f9 did two i think 210 215 which was a come down but honestly a it's not very good b ironically it's it has a lot of the same problems that i had with detective chinatown three which also opened huge in china and then dropped like a rock before still making seven 685 million dollars but that's chinese box office for you um I only bring that up to say, you know, the reasons why F9 did not get, was not leggy in China, had nothing to do with the John Cena Taiwan stuff. That's just, the film was already, you know, even by opening night, audience were saying, eh, this isn't very good. You know, there's too much mythology, there's much, too much retcon continuity, there's too much uh, no harm, no foul action, yada, yada, you know, it's it's going for melodrama it's not earning, which, you know, again, to a certain extent, that's my issue with Detective Chinatown 3, which spends basically the entire second act doing what I would argue is mythology building and franchise building. But anyway, um, yeah, this film was made with the intent to at least somewhat capitalize on F- Fast and Furious's popularity in China. Um, I think to the extent that it did was frankly surprising. Um, Just because, you know, star power is fickle. Just like in North America, you know, just because everybody shows up for Fate of the Furious doesn't mean they're going to show up for The Last Witch Hunter. Or Bloodshot. (laughs) Or honestly, anything that Vin Diesel does, other than the Fast and Furious films. And again, that's, that's not his fault. You know, back in the 80s, Sylvester Stallone was somewhat of an anomaly in that he was a huge star, as long as it was a Rocky or a Rambo movie. But he couldn't open an envelope and anything else, with a couple very minor exceptions. Uh, and now that's him in a nutshell. You know, if you're playing an IP character, a marquee character, especially if that character is a loose variation on your star persona. So, for example, Will Smith can be the genie in Aladdin who's basically playing him like he's in a sequel to Hitch, and that's big box office. Tom Holland can play young Nathan Drake, basically, you know, Peter Parker with a gun. That's decent box office. Um, but does, you know, unfortunately, when Will Smith tries to make an old school movie, movie the uh, the Gemini Man, King Richard, Collateral Beauty, Concussion, Focus, the returns are much lower because the audience that would have once shown up for Will Smith just because Will Smith was in it, that audience doesn't exist anymore. He's not in theaters.
1: Right, and so yeah, I mean, just to sum up the box office for this one, it landed number twenty seven. Um, at the worldwide for that year between murder on the orient express and the chinese language film never say die um, which um, sounds interesting it's about a male ufc boxer switches bodies with a female reporter who exposed his bribes now they must help each other win the championship Fair enough. i would watch this movie <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a twist it's a twist and the top three for the year number one was star wars the last jedi number two was beauty and the beast and number three was The Fate of the Furious.
2: Wait, wait, hold, and, on, hold on. The internet tells me that everybody hated The Last Jedi and it was a giant flop in Star Wars. I'm confused.
1: Yeah. Well, isn't that known? It was. Isn't that known? Yeah?
2: I off. That's <laughs> what I... Yeah.
1: No, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, yes.
0: can, I can hear the, uh, the Star Wars trolls are turning on their lightsabers and running towards us right now. So let's, uh, let's back away whilst we still can. I'm used to it. It
1: happens once a week. They'll chop our hand off. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, you know, Scott Mendelssohn was referring to a sequel to this film, a triple X4. And that was going to be the case in 2017. They announced they were moving forward with it. Um, actor Jay Chow was added, who was in uh, The Green Hornet, as well as uh, Zoe Zhang. And Vin Diesel was actually fielding casting suggestions on Instagram. Who they, you know who would fans like to see in another triple X film? The Rock. But this is, this is where it gets a little convoluted. <laughs> the Rock yet. Yeah, not in Vin Diesel's world anymore. Um, this is where it gets convoluted. So there was a merger between two groups, Yang Galaxy and H Collective. H Collective was a group formed by a few producers, but Joe Roth, who works on the Triple X films, being one of them. And um, the Yang Galaxy was promised 100% rights to Triple X when they merged. That was actually not the case. They would get 50%. And Vin Diesel had to sign off on it. This led to a very convoluted lawsuit. I will let anyone who's interested look up for themselves. But nonetheless, it basically sidelined this franchise for quite a while to the point where the question now you know, really lands in 2022. Um, is there really room for a XXX4 five years after this one?
2: Especially with China, you know, Hollywood box office for, in China being even less certain than it was in you know, pre-COVID times. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, would I watch it? Absolutely. And honestly, you know, jokes aside, it was almost—it wasn't idiotic for Vin Diesel to go on Instagram and say, "Who do you want to see in this film?" Because one of the reasons I like this film or the previous one, one of the reasons I think it did well overseas, is that it has a really eclectic cast. There's like, oh, I would pay $10 to watch that group of people do action for 105 minutes. So even if I don't care about the Xander Cage mythology or the brand, that's still something that is appealing to me.
0: Well, I want to guide us into talking about the film. And I want to talk about why you're here, Scott, and why you're so passionate about this film. But I want to ask you first, because I probably should have asked earlier. What's your take on the first two Xander Cage? Well, the first two Triple X films, obviously one, Sans, Xander. Um, the
2: first one is not my favorite picture. I think it improves in the second half once the character of Xander Cage starts to realize the severity of the situation and starts taking his mission more seriously, which means the movie, you know, the movie takes everything more seriously. Um, the action is fine. The stunt work is fine. Um, I mean, It's 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 a little, you know, it's intentionally obnoxious to the way that it tries to be, you know, this isn't like 007. Ha, ha, ha. And one of the nice things about the franchise when it started was that, and this goes to think how things were 20 years ago versus how things are now. The movie turns 20 years this summer, by the way. Is that it was sort of advertising itself as the replacement to James Bond, but what opened two months earlier, the Bourne identity, which became the replacement for James Bond both franchises were relatively successful. Uh, um, but both franchises were popular with moviegoers because they were unique and different from what else was in the marketplace. And unfortunately, you know, in 2016-2017, audiences were flocking to Jason Bourne and Triple X3 because they were pre you know, they weren't new. They weren't different. They were things that we were already aware of and comfortable with. And I think, you know, it's 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 a definitive a shift, as you can imagine, in movie going tastes. And yes, it's a big reason why theatrical is in the trouble it's in right now. Um the second one I kind of like, not because it's all that good, but it's interesting. And in then I saw it in summer 2005. And I got to tell you, this was, you know, in the heart of the George W. Bush era, we're still in the Iraq war. You know, the Republicans still hold both seats in that house at the moment. The idea of a liberal president being basically cooed out of power in a violent coup attempt by a neocon member of his government, did not seem terribly implausible, even then. And obviously, unfortunately now, it's another case of where, you know, real life went and took a fantastical action movie plot and made it a documentary. Um, other than that, the film's relatively unremarkable. Other than the fact that I found it weirdly frightening and a prescient this, this actually could happen kind of way, which I don't think the filmmakers were intending. Um, It just real life had just gotten that scary at that point. Um, But I saw it once in theaters, you know, never saw it again, whatever. Um, And again, I wasn't exactly in the tank for a third one. I didn't care. You know, I kind of sort of liked the first one. I kind of sort of liked the second one. The reason I was interested in this one from the get go is I liked the cast. You know, it was it was people that I had I knew and liked or it was quirky people that I just knew enough to know, okay, I'll watch them play in an action movie sandbox. And there's you know, not to be purient, there's a lot of ridiculously good looking people in this film. Um <laughs> and you know, you want to talk about, you know, Hollywood movies not being horny anymore. This, you know, Return of Xander Cage has no you know, it's playing in the Roger Moore, Sean Connery, James Bond sandbox. <laughs> Uh, as opposed to I'd say most most films these days is playing in the Timothy Dalton sandbox, right. I yeah. love Timothy Dalton's Bond. don't get me wrong, but he's not getting much action on the side um one thing that you know upon rewatching trip you know Triple X return of Xander Cage, which was the first time I had seen it since theaters um is that it did feel dirtier and scuzzier I mean again, it's a bloodless pg thirteen action picture. It's not like anyone's head gets blown off. Um, and it also has a certain morality that reminded me more of the earlier Fast and Furious films where, you know, the good guys are revealed to be the bad guys and the people revealed to be the bad guys are actually at worst the anti-heroes. Um, and that's something that I think intentionally or not resonated more in, you know, the first year of the Trump presidency versus you know, more of the same that we got in Fate of the Furious that f- f- couple months later. So, I mean, if we're talking,
0: because you've been on Twitter, not just to us, but to other people talking about this film and, and you're, that you're a fan of it. And I think you, I've seen you defend it a couple of times. Is it just, is it the cast and just sort of the, the feel of the film that brings you back to it and makes you passionate about it? I mean, what what is it that keeps that in your memory? Because there's a lot of films you watch and I, I don't know if this is the top brass.
2: It is a bright, colorful, big but not obscenely big budget action-adventure film with a huge cast of people I like that are clearly having fun. You have Dabika, I'm going to mispronounce this, I apologize, Paducone. Um, You have Donnie Yen, who's having a blast. Ruby Rose is cast a type and having a lot of fun. Uh, Tony Jaw is showing a hint of the comic timing he would eventually show in Detective Chinatown 3. Sorry, I didn't mean to keep name-dropping that film. But it's fun if you want to rent it for four bucks. And he's really funny in it. And having discovered Tony Ja in, you know, really serious action films like The Protector and Ong Bank, it was sort of a kick to watch him, you know, oh, he's funny. I mean, he's not just in this movie as a stupid cameo and, oh, wait, it's Tony Ja. He's really funny. Um, And even, you know, Nina Dobriff, who's playing sort of the hot nerd. And yeah, it's a type, but whatever. And the best, of course, is Tony Collette. As the villain of the picture, who gets a fight scene with Donnie Yen, <laughs> that is amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you're starting to sell it a little bit. So,
1: um, Cam, uh, what about you revisiting, you know, x Three? What do you think? So, I um, have told an anecdote before how there used to be a movie theater right next to my house that has since been demolished, and it would be a place I would often go um, at like ten PM to see like action movie sequels and that sort of thing. Kind of these cheaper action movies and have a lot of fun with because it wasn't a particularly nice theater, but it was cheap. And it would be like, oh, night off, I'm bored. I'm going to go see The Mechanic 2. Why not? And this feels like the kind of movie that I genuinely would have had a lot of fun seeing at that theater. I don't think I did. I think I paid more money to see it at a bigger theater. But it has that sort of... I'm going to say this in like a loving way, not in an insulting way, but kind of like a low-rent feel. Like It's yeah. kind of that B-movie action film that you would watch with your friends and have fun with. Is it perfect? No. <laughs> but it's a cast that's having a lot of fun. And one of the most important things is, I think the action's pretty fantastic a lot of the time. Uh, Donnie Yen is... I mean, he is the secret weapon of this movie. Yeah. Maybe not even a secret weapon. He's just the weapon. He is the reason to see X. You know the return of xander cage and it's kind of like when you have an actor like him there i think ruby rose is also contributing a lot it's kind of bringing up the energy of everyone around them and i do think the cast is a little hit or miss (laughs) but nonetheless like the energy remains high and one of the smartest things i think they did was you look at the original triple x it's like it's over two hours this one they pull back to like 147 including credits and it makes it feel more fast-paced. It helps the, let's be honest, convoluted plot fly by in kind of a blink. You're not spending a lot of time obsessing over the Pandora's box. And so ultimately, it's just kind of like a fast ride that you may get to the end and scratch your head and go, wait, what? But nonetheless, you had a fun time sitting through it.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of the film's plotting, like, are we supposed to forget the fart where Donnie Yen broke into a place and killed like 10 people? Because <laughs> I remember that scene. I know, I know Vin uh-huh. Diesel's action films have a weird thing about redeeming villains. Which, to be fair, that's comic book mythology for you right there. I mean, you know, if you watch the CW Arrowverse shows, I'm always amazed. Wait a minute! I just saw that guy murder like eight guards, and now he's a good guy. Okay, whatever, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a short film. It's all about a hundred. You know, it's under a hundred minutes with, with minus credits. Um, and it moves. I mean, it, it's it's the first. Well, the the opening sequence is is a monologue with Sam Jackson basically just goofing off. Um, and you know it does sort of play into a f- fun way the fact that he's now sort of Nick Fury to an entire generation of moviegoers. Um, and then you have you know Donnie Yen who gets the first action scene before Vin Diesel does, frankly, and it's a dazzling. You know, it introduces us to most basically the villains we think are the villains anyway. um, And then we eventually get to Vin Diesel, and that's nice. I mean, honestly, for better, I, I think Vin Diesel deserves a lot of credit for casting all of these people that would almost certainly, he had to know they would outshine and overshadow him and steal the movie out from under him. I do think by default it's a little bit too much Xander Cage in the Xander Cage movie, just because he's not as interesting of a character as his supporting cast. Um... And yeah, you're right. He's, I think he was like 49 years old when he made this film. And he's still basically casting himself as, you know, sexual dynamo to every woman he meets. <laughs>
0: um, that it, scene with like the four girls. Yeah. And six. The, the, I'm just six, like, Scott, come on now.
1: Oh, six. Sorry. <laughs> Cam counted them, clearly. Slow-mo. It, it reminded <laughs> me of um, Alex Kurtzman's The Mummy, starring Tom Cruise. Oh, God. And yeah, it's a terrible movie. But there's like scenes of characters referencing like um, the unbelievable sexual appetite of Tom Cruise's character in early sections of the movie, and you're like, like really? Is it, I, I thought I was watching The Mummy.
2: <laughs> also, no matter how old Tom Cruise gifts his love interest, always stay thirty-one.
1: <laughs> it's true. It's mm. true. Although a lot of the women Vin Diesel's with here look to be about
2: twenty-five max. Oh yeah, they're they're yeah, they're Hermione. Corfield, I think, when this film was made, she was... Do, 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 do. Yeah, she was like 23. No, 22, because she did... Yeah, she was 22.
1: Oh, God. And she plays the information broker, yeah, early on, yeah. Have you seen Xander Cage? I mean, come <laughs> on. Well, the Xander Zone is
0: legendary. <laughs> Once you're in that coat, there's no coming back from that. That's uh... I,
2: I like that not only are these people in this film... But more or less they all get to be funny. They all get to actually, you know, have fun. You know, Tony Collette is absolutely having a blast here in a very obviously against type part. She's basically the and I mean this is a compliment because it's fun, but she's the icy hot bitch on wheels boss character. Um and, you know, Ruby Rose makes a very vulgar pass at her, which, frankly, is more LGBT representation that you see in most blockbusters these days. For a film that, by the way, made $164 million in China. So, please stop using China as an excuse, Hollywood. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, you know, Tony Jaa's having fun. Donnie Yen is, is showing that he's apparently ageless, because, dear God.
1: <laughs> well, you know, speaking of having fun, Scott Host... Scott, what did you think of Triple X Return of Xander Cage? Sorry, I keep looking out the window. I'm next to an RAF base,
0: and they've just launched about four airplanes and about eight helicopters. So I'm just kind of paying attention. Wow. It's all good, Scott. What what could be the worst that could ever happen right now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my my military is mobilizing. That's fun. I'm in Europe. That's even more fun. Right. Here we go. Oh, look. A gun has turned up for me. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've been conscripted. Anyway. Let's talk about Triple X. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep it light here. <laughs> Good god. It's interesting uh, that Scott mentioned Roger Moore earlier because that name is in my notes a lot. This feels like a Roger Moore Bond film with a bigger budget and you know the the naughty sensibilities I suppose. It, it's a fun action romp that I didn't know I wanted and I've now watched it twice in between doing the interview and, and doing it for this podcast and both times I watched it I didn't get bored and I, and I can't say that for a lot of other films that we've watched and, and, and prestige films that we've watched The Ipocris File is meant to be a blast. Can't stand it. Oh, you know, Enemy of the geez. state. Enemy of the state was meant to be a you know, a really fun time. I enjoy oh. Enemy of the State, but it doesn't fly by for me. Okay. Fair. This flies by. And I mean that in the exact sense of the word, in terms of, you know, Vin Diesel running out of that aircraft at the end of the film. That oh, shot God. will stay with me. It is beautiful.
1: <laughs> I was having under siege two dark territory flashbacks at that shot.
2: I'll come on and defend that one too. <laughs>
1: I, I, oh, I will, too. I, I, you know what? I have the DVD autographed. Oh, oh God. By who? <laughs> Steven Seagal.
2: Oh, see. If you would said Eric Boggason, that would have been the win.
1: I know. Uh, Seagal <laughs> did an autograph signing at a casino in Vancouver, like, in 2002. <laughs> oh, my God. And my friend called me, and he was like, uh, this, there's this weird signing. Let's go. And so I went and got my DVDs of Under Siege 1 and 2 signed. Did, did you try and grapple with Steven Seagal?
2: These days, you could probably take him. yeah
1: no kidding um at the time like he'd been talking for maybe like a decade plus about making a Genghis Khan biopic and so I approached him and I said will that Genghis Khan film ever happen and he said it has to brother (laughs) that's the most Steven Seagal response I think he could come up with yes so that's the story that was my entire interaction with the man
0: it's better than my interaction with a lot of people in Hollywood, to be fair. There's a lot of who are you and get out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, just to, like my thoughts briefly, as I say, it's just a ton of fun. I was I had very low expectations coming off of Triple X two State of the Union. I did not like that film. I didn't like almost anything about it scott's take on it was interesting i hadn't heard that because when we reviewed it it was three canadians and one british guy so we're looking at it from more of a political standpoint i hadn't really you know perceived it that way but for me it was just it wasn't what i was looking for in a triple x film which is a weird sentence to say that someone's looking for something in a triple x film uh unless a different kind of triple x film perhaps but yeah i i was uh, bowled over by this one and i i could see myself revisiting it for the fun of it Uh, A lot of people throw the word Roger-tainment around when it comes to his Bond
1: films, and this is probably the closest you could get to Roger-tainment without Roger Moore. Yeah. And also, you know, when you have scenes of, like, Vin Diesel putting on that jacket and surrounding himself with, like, six women, there is an absurdity to it that you see in those Roger Moore films. Although I always felt like Roger Moore was in on the joke, and I don't know that Vin Diesel is.
2: That is a good question, just because he's such a sincere guy. Yeah. I mean, that's why everyone enjoyed that, you know, welcome back to the movies thing he did, because unlike the crass Disney version, which had retrofitted Stanley Lee narration, Vin Diesel meant it.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. And when you watch, like, the Fast and Furious movies, and he's really grumbling through these tormented monologues, you often think, I think he actually buys the gravitas of this character. <laughs>
2: And, I, you know, without picking sides here, I think that's why he and Dwayne Johnson don't get along. Yeah. Because I think Dwayne Johnson is very in on the joke to a certain extent. You know, it's sort of like, you know, the among, you know, it's sort of these artistic sensibilities of, of you know, a Zack Snyder versus a Joss Whedon. One is very quippy and on the joke and sarcastic. The other one is very sincere and open-hearted and wants to make, you know, something mythological.
0: I'm looking forward to the uh, black and white four-hour Uh, Fast and Furious 10. (laughs) No.
2: Composed for IMAX screens. (laughs) God. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report.
0: Agents, pardon
1: the interruption, but we have some top secret intel. That's right. Independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research. We don't have Townsend Agency resources.
0: And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. No one wants to hear that shit, tucky Mushrooms. And this is a big reason
1: we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here asking for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to bring your listening experience up to Cube Branch standards. With a wide range of flexible options and
0: an ever-growing catalogue to dive into. Become a true spy hard today and enter the Xander Zone at patreon.com slash spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now Cam, on with the Spy Jinx. Okay, now um, let's break it down a little bit. Just we'll have some likes, things that we liked about him we haven't discussed yet. Scott, something you liked that we haven't spoken about yet. Me? Oh, I can't say my name and
2: ask myself. So yes, oh, I'm Scott. sorry. I apologize. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the opening, in terms of, I like the grenade eggshell sequence where they're basically trading a live grenade at the table. Yeah, uh, I like the the foot chase between Donnie Yen and Vin Diesel that closes the second act of the picture. Um, obviously, I like the opening massacre. For, where Donnie Yen just walks in and shoots everybody. Um, and, you know, the character in her you know, obviously Samuel Jackson is doing a lot with a little. They're all doing a lot with a little, because it's not like this is a, you know, this isn't a mammoth-level script we're dealing with here. Um, a lot of the dialogue by default is, you know, go here, do this, look out. Um, I think the m- big action scene in the island doesn't, it's a little busier and less finesse than it needs to be um sort of chaos for the sake of chaos um i do like the fact just from a you know subversive point of view is that you know again getting back to you know the film's politics without overthinking it i mean at the end of the day the bad guys are american soldiers who are anti-heroes are killing at the end you know, it doesn't really try to take the shortcuts like, oh, you know, they're private contractors or they're, you know, they're rogue agents that don't, you know, they're they're U.S. government operatives that are being blown to bits by this cadre of, uh, you know, anti-heroes. Um, And that's the kind of thing that, you know, without really making a big deal about that, without having to apologize or explain that, is the kind of thing that you would arguably see in a film that wasn't necessarily concerned to being a four-quadrant appeal to everyone, It. And the film was expensive, but again, $85 million is a lot less than Fate of the Furious.
1: When we talked to Rich Wilkes, who, you know, wrote the original XXX, like, a lot of the idea of that was to be a little bit subversive and to kind of shake up what you could do in a spy film. And I feel like this is continuing that thread, and maybe the movie is more poppy bubblegum than the original was even going for, but it's like that sort of that DNA is still there. It looks to me like, you know, Scott Frazier examined the first triple X and took away kind of the necessary things to carry over, especially in a movie like this, which is much more ensemble cast based where you could lose the focus on what a triple X movie even is. I, yeah. I don't really know what it is after the second one, but nonetheless, it feels like just by keeping those core concepts and evolving them, it still feels like it belongs next to the original. I've I've seen your Google search history, Cam.
0: You know what a XXX film is. <laughs> Thanks, Guy.
2: <laughs> um, right. Uh, I think the film follows in the footsteps of the Fast and the Furious franchise, which of course became exceptionally popular on a worldwide stage when it became more of an a true blue ensemble, beginning with you know Fast and Furious Four, Fast and Furious, you know, and then you know Fast Five took the franchise into the stratosphere um and frankly that has been adopted by a number of other real world non-fantasy action franchises like the mission impossible films which went from ethan hunt to ethan hunt and friends and even to a certain extent the last couple of daniel craig james bond movies were kind of leaning into the you know supporting cast in a way a greater degree than you would expect in a james bond film i'm very curious to see if john wick 4 does likewise um cuz i think that certainly is a choice they can do, because I think they have to think they're hoping for an overseas breakout on the fourth film, because the films are doing great to, by, in terms of their budget, but they're still doing 50-50 domestic overseas, and it was, you know, the fourth Mission Impossible went bonkers overseas, the fourth, uh, Fast and Furious is the, uh, the one that really, the first one that made more overseas than in North America. Um and to a certain extent whenever you want to count the fourth jason bourne film if i'm not counting the bourne legacy that one did substantially more overseas than in north america so there is you don't have to start as an overseas first franchise and that's why you know fast and furious has been kind of this this aspirational success story is that it started as a small counter programming and let's be honest it was counter programming for more diverse inclusive audiences or people who wanted more diverse, inclusive movies, it was a film for kids about younger characters having relatable street-level adventures, and it was counterprogramming to you know the Mummy Returns, Shrek, uh, uh, Tomb Raider, etc., etc., etc. But it eventually, it evolved into basically the biggest real-world action franchise in Hollywood, which means what Vin Diesel failed to do in Triple X which is supplant or compete with the James Bond series, he succeeded with the Fast and Furious franchise.
1: And yeah, when I talk about, you know, what I like about this movie, it is that ensemble aspect because what I do, I will say this for Vin Diesel. I do appreciate that they, these triple X movies let him do something a little different where he gets to be a little more showy on screen. He gets to be a little more verbal and having kind of these scenes where he's like, um, you know, they could call back to the diner scene in the first one here where he's sitting on a bench and then calling out, All the various tells that the CIA were giving away when they were trying to, you know, create the scenario around him. Moments like that allow him to be kind of more playful. And he doesn't get to do that in Fast and Furious movies. So there's elements of that I enjoy. But yeah, Donnie Yen to me and Tony Collette are just head and shoulders carrying this movie, if not Vin Diesel. It's like the three of them are just fantastic. And I do think like Ruby Rose really jumped out to me on the rewatch where i don't know that i paid as much attention to the supporting cast the first time i think i was more maybe just kind of thrown at how much of a supporting cast it was that you know vin diesel was kind of disappearing yeah but i do think like their energy is what keeps the movie going and some of the quips are you know kind of eye-rolling and some of them are kind of funny so it's a hit or miss but some of them are you know they hit decently but that's that's how bond films work too yeah yeah. Hit and
0: miss with, with the quips, and you know, you talk about like the energy of, of Tony Collette and of, of Donnie Yen, they're actually giving completely different things to the film. One is giving this like ferocity, this action, and this intense stunt work that Donnie Yen's bringing, and then Tony Collette's just chewing up the scenery as the villain. Totally different things, and you would think in a lot of films they wouldn't mesh, but here they just seem to work. It, I think it's the perfect combination of outrageous concept and an outrageous set of actors that are all just having fun and
1: i think as scott said you can just see it on the screen well the movie ends with like pick you know the classic video credits right where we see the actors laughing and often you see these and you kind of then hear the production was a nightmare or something like that you go oh okay whereas here i actually buy that these actors were cracking up on set oh yeah for me
0: and I never, and this, is, this is a like, I never thought I would say this out loud after Triple x 2 But thank God the gangster's back. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw Darius Stone turn up on my screen and say rock, paper, scissors, grenade launcher, I was, this, this is pure cinema for me. This is, this is Avengers Endgame before there was one. This is, this is the multiverse that I wanted. I wanted the Triple X crossover. And I might not get a fourth film, but if this is the closest I'm going to get, I am back in the Stone Age. We
1: have the Xander Zone and the Stone Age. Well, it feels almost like an earlier version of when you look at Spider-Man No Way Home, where they made you actually kind of care about characters like the Lizard and Electro and also the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. They kind of did that here where it was suddenly like, oh, no one liked that Triple X sequel, State of the Union, but you put Ice Cube in here and I would totally watch a sequel of him and Vin Diesel side by side.
2: Well, that's what that's what Fast and Furious did with the fourth film where it created artificial nostalgia for a franchise with characters that, you know, I don't think anyone cared that much about them prior. Um, and, you know, also, you know, several years later... What Fox did with with X-Men Days of Future Past, where they created nostalgia for a cast that had only been gone for eight years. Okay, that's a long time, but, um, you know, basically artificial nostalgia for a franchise that kind of petered out, at least artistically. Um, it just, I think it showed going both how well Days of Future Past did and comparatively how poorly the other rebooted X-Men films did, quality notwithstanding, I think there was a lot more hunger for that original trilogy cast than was assumed.
0: It, it, it does go to show that time is definitely a flat circle because yeah. they're still wheeling out Patrick's do it now. And I mean wheeling out literally. Yeah, no that kidding. That character
2: has died on screen twice. <laughs> it's Not a enough. multiverse,
0: man. It's a multiverse. But... Um, Back, back to, like, the Darius Stone of it all. I, yeah, I was just, it got, it knew what it was. I think this has maybe goes towards the film itself. It knew what it was, and it's just a schlocky action film. So having him pop up with a grenade launcher in most other films would just make you go, well, this is stupid. But here, you actually pop. You go, ah, this is great. This is great. And then you just roll with it.
1: Well, it's a, it's a classic deus ice <laughs> machina. <laughs> mm. moving swiftly on yes so i think one of the other great things about this movie <laughs> is the practical stunts getting back to that i mean the uh second one had a real reliance on cg like real reliance whereas i think getting back here to the like the practical stuff the skateboarding the um you know jungle skiing And the motorbiking on water stuff, it looks fantastic as, you know, shown on screen. And it's a lot of fun.
2: Like, all of these sequences really work. Yeah. And even the stuff that's probably CG, like, I'm pretty sure, I'm going to guess they did not actually, you know, ride a motorcycle in a wave. I mean.
1: How dare you? How dare
2: you? Even that stuff, (laughs) it works with the junky, schlocky, grindhouse feel of the film in a way that, you know, when James Bond did that and die, die another day, everyone, went, oh my god, I look so fake. And that's because it is fake. He can't actually do that. Okay. <laughs> I have other issues with that film, but that's not one of them.
0: Um, I want to see Roger Moore raise his eyebrow whilst playing hot potato with grenades. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that scene. It it isn't oh, that yeah. far out. It 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 seems just like something sort of he would deal with.
1: Yeah. I mean, I legit burst out laughing when they show up at the pier. There and there's like the arms dealer surrounded by like I don't know 20 models all wearing white. <laughs> there's a dress code on that island, Cam. Clearly,
0: <laughs> um, I mean, just in in terms of other things, I liked we, we did briefly mention uh Becky, Becky Clearidge who comes in and steps in uh, for sort of the tech wizard role. Uh, in this one to change up now the actor who was in the first two passed away not long after um so and, and that was a shame but i think they made the best of that and i think she's a really fun addition to the cast um and it and it's nice to have a bit of energy in that person that's like the, the person in the van the man in the van and she's i mean she's flirting with every single person that has a pulse in this film
1: well it it feels like the first one they had an angle they kept calling him college boy but they never really specified what made that character interesting or why he should pop in his limited screen time whereas like the becky character it really feels like they were like this character has to be kind of just grab your attention every moment she's on screen and yeah like the actress you know nina dobrev is like more than up to it she's just she's like a live wire in this movie and um, back to the, the quick mention of the practical
0: stunts i was speaking with uh john from behind the stunts um podcast, and we'll have him on the show very soon i hope and yeah you know, he was nothing but complimentary of the stunt team that worked on this and we just compare that to the problems that we have with you know uh triple x two state of the union where it's clearly just ice cube sitting in green screen sets for most of that film and this is 2004 green screen
2: to be fair i don't necessarily think of Ice Cube as someone that does all of his own stunts. I mean, yeah, he can beat the crap out of me. That goes without saying. But he always struck me as more of a, you know, I'm standing and beating you up kind of action you know star. Something close to Schwarzenegger. When I think of Schwarzenegger, I don't think of Jackie Chan. No. Um, and I think Vin Diesel wants to be both and to be fair. There's lots of people in this film that does stuff, do stuff that he can't, and he gives them the spotlight. Um. So yeah, I, I I was not surprised that Triple X was less stunt intensive than the, or the second one was less stunt intensive than the first one, and yeah, it's not, for the record, I don't think it's a particularly good movie. It just was interesting for me at the time that I saw it. No, sure. I I, I just think it was like um, it, it was
0: they they made efforts in the second one to say that we're not about the stunts. Yeah. I'm I'm not gonna. This isn't about skateboarding. This is about yeah, you know, real men in cars. But that's kind of one of the reasons people turned up to the first one, was the counterculture and the X-Games and that sort of New Metal feel of what was going on at the time. Certainly why I turned up for the first one. And to push that away, it pushed away a lot of the audience. Yeah. And But this this embraces it a little bit. I mean, there's no New Metal soundtrack, unfortunately, but the absurdity of it all, it embraces it. Well, you know,
2: it's because it's such a small cameo, and even if it were bigger, because it's still an ensemble cast, if you like the character that but Stone, I think is his name. It doesn't, you know, he's still fun to be there even, you know, regardless of the movie. So by having him just show up there when he does, you get the best of both worlds. Get the character you like without the movie that you don't. And that's, you know, obviously that's Spider-Man No Way Home in a nutshell. You know, you have, care. you know, even if you liked Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man, you know, those films had issues. But now you can see the Spider-Man you like in a film that you theoretically enjoy. Um, but I think there's a certain, you know, confusion among the perpetually online that because everybody showed up to Spider-Man No Way Home and everybody liked Andrew Garfield, that those two films are retroactively good, actually. Nope. <laughs> and I'll defend part two. At least it's colourful, bright, and it's not a grimdark remake of the first Spider-Man. But...
0: We we recently spoke with the cinematographer of that film and uh, none of us mentioned it once. Fair enough. Yeah. Because yeah. he's made... Other very, very good films. <laughs> but uh, let's talk about things we maybe didn't like as much because we're basically blowing smoke directly up Triple X three's butt, and it's not without its faults. Uh I would I, I'll I'll lead us off. I think it was a shame we didn't have more Samuel Jackson in the film.
2: Yeah. Ah
1: uh, I mean yes and no. I, I, mean, it's- I don't know. You, you need him gone for Tony Collette to take center stage, and I think she's so much fun that I don't really miss him that much.
2: And also, if you're going to do a plot where the good guys are actually the bad guys, you need Gibbons out of the way. Otherwise, A, are you going to make him a bad guy, and that's no fun? Or B, is he going to be going there, oh, how did I not know what's going on? Which is what you end up with Spider Man Far From Home, by the way. Like, oh, I didn't know this random guy pretending to be an alien from another world was a, you know, a trickster. Oh, well, no.
1: Anyway. I would like to know how he survived the opening of this movie. I feel like that was a real cheat. <laughs>
2: yeah, uh, it is. It's. its is. Un- I'm not a fan of that closing bit. You know, if you're going to kill him, kill him, but, you know, keep him dead. The other thing is, you know, the film's sort of confused in terms of, did he just survive or did he fake his own death? Because, you know, his monologue kind of implies that he sort of set the whole thing up. It's like, okay, what about everybody else in that shop? <laughs> Yeah,
1: and when you had, like, Nick Fury um, kind of fake his own yeah. death in the Marvel universe, you understood the circumstances better? Like, it made more sense how he could survive and fake his death, yes. whereas here it's like, uh, this is a full-on cheat.
2: Yeah, it is. I don't, I don't like it.
0: Um, to be fair, Samuel Jackson's character and Triple X have both already died at least once in this franchise, before this film.
2: Yeah, that's true. Xander Cage was killed off in a DVD extra uh yeah <laughs> this was back when you know he turned down the second film um for whatever reason and there's a dvd extra on the
1: the special edition yeah
2: it, it wasn't the first release yeah because it was later down it was right around scene of the union was coming out and i guess like he walks into a building you know it's not him obviously it's a double walks into a building that then explodes and oops he's dead
0: yeah, it's his, uh, it's his actual Vin Diesel's actual stunt double they oh, use nice. and, uh, y- you get to see like his coat go up and a flap of skin with the yep. triple X t- tattoo land on the floor in front of you as a big F you to the fans, uh, which was nice. I think it was an FU to Vin Diesel, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You're probably
1: right there, Scott. But, uh, what, what about you guys? Some other dislikes? I'll throw it out. Um. I thought the romantic subplot with uh, Debika Patacone's Patacone's character, Serena, was dire. Yeah. (laughs) Like,
2: There was a love story there? There was a... Well, I mean, because does he ever have chemistry with any of his... I mean, it's it's a Dwayne Johnson type situation. He
1: doesn't. I feel like the Serena character is a very unfortunate role for any uh, actress to play because... It's kind of played as a little serious. Everyone else is having fun around you. And to me, a lot of that
2: stuff just falls really flat in the movie. If she were the only woman in the movie, I'd be bitching and moaning about, you know, crappy female characters and male driven action films. But because she's not, I'm not as concerned that she has to be the straight faced, take everything seriously, not so bad after all love interest. Because there are other actresses that are getting to play different modes. It's different than something like Guardians of the Galaxy, which I generally like. But they do have Zoe Zaldana be the humorless mom scold of the group. And that's something that you see a lot. I think that's one reason why people took to Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow, is that she was allowed to be funny. (laughs) Well, I think that's why the Ruby
1: Rose character works so well, is that she's incredibly efficient. You see her, like, a lot of agency in all her action scenes has the quips, but also has the serious level. Like, yeah. she can actually have a conversation with another character and not trade quips. So, like, I think that's why, for me, like, her character really jumps out. And um, just also, like, I, I agree with Scott Mendelssohn that, like, when you get to the back half of this movie and, like, you've got that whole warehouse, like, action sequence, like, it's pretty bad. Like, I really don't know what's going on. It has no geography whatsoever. Uh, stuff like that I think is pretty, pretty rough.
2: It just goes on for too long as well. yeah. It's just it's the same shoot, bam, explosion over and over again with a lot of rhythm and a lot of, a lot of variation. To be fair, it's one of the two action climaxes of the film, and I would argue it's very clear that their heart is in the, what happens in the airplane, because you have the three more interesting, most interesting, more important characters fighting it out in an airplane. Um, but oh, I agree. I also think the action scene in the mid, early in the second act, where they're all fighting in the little island, and just, it's chaos. Yeah. I But again, I do very much like the foot chase that closes out the second act, when they're both racing to get to the same high-rise building. That bit feels very, like, Bourne yeah. to me. Uh, well, yeah, and if I recall, there's, you know, one of the characters that gets killed in the opening Donnie Yen scene, supposed to look like Jason Bourne, um, gets killed with a book. Oh, really? Yeah. The guy that gets killed Oh, with I book. did not make that connection. Just in the first film, there's obviously a character that's supposed to be James Bond that gets shot dead at a concert. Um, and the funny thing is he gets killed with a book years before, you know, John Wick tried the same trick.
1: Yeah, because on the rewatch, all I thought of was John Wick 3. I didn't yeah. think of Jason Bourne. But that makes sense because that was such a hallmark of that franchise was the basic household object fight. Yeah. yeah.
2: I'll be honest, I didn't catch that when I saw it in theaters. I just noticed, kind of noticed it last night. Um. Yeah, it was obviously a lot subtler than the opening of the first Triple X movie, where you have a guy and actually it's somebody vaguely famous uh triple james bond character it's somebody that we talk about now and i don't remember why the context let's well, you know what i'll look this up later So i'm getting spy with love me information that's not going to work because i'm getting you know Anya <laughs> <Umavosa> from russia <laughs>
0: yeah um it's just, it's just back to roger moore there that's all it is um I, I suppose the only thing I would I would point out as well for dislikes was apart from the thing I pointed out before was the the MacGuffin of it all the, yes. the Transmuka <laughs> the I can't remember what it's called the the thing that can kill people from space basically uh, but spy films and action films are basically filled with these things nowadays these uh, you know MacGuffins as they are uh, it, it, they're fine they exist it they're it's a means to an end to tell a story but. Um, I still don't necessarily know
1: what it does or why I should care. It does everything. It does absolutely everything because she says... She like lists off all the things it could do, and I just made a note. It does everything. And I don't really understand the whole Donnie Yen stealing a prototype so that they can have Vin Diesel go after him and get it, but there's actually another version that they own already. It gets very complicated. But uh,
0: So I will leave that there, but... I think just to sort of wrap us up on, on sort of triple X and final thoughts, just to throw it out to Scott before we get to the knock list, any sort of final notes you have on the film?
2: Uh, not particularly. I mean, again, I I like it quite a bit. But I know, you know, we're talking about a three-star action-adventure picture here. I'm not saying it's, you know, up there with, you know, the best Bonds and the best Mission Impossibles or whatever. Although, actually, I think by default, I like it. I would argue it's better than the Fast and Furious movies, save for Furious Fast Five, Furious Seven, and I'm not huge on Fast Tokyo Drift, but it has a fan base, and I'm not going to begrudge that. But I do think it's better than most of the Fast and Furious pictures, um, a franchise that has its charms and does its thing, but I think, you know, has been spending the last 10 years, understandably, chasing the shadow of Fast, Fast Five, which in the same way you know, as Star Wars or The Empire Strikes Back was such a good film and such a much better sequel than expecting to sort of set the bar too high for almost everything else that followed. But no, in a vacuum, this is a solid three-star action-adventure comedy with a great cast. It looks colorful. Uh, everybody gets a chance to play. The action scenes are clever and mostly practical. And the CGI is either invisible or it's kitschy. Um, and it's just, it's a damn good time at the movies. Yeah. What about you, Cam? Um, I've got a few notes I'll
1: make. The infographics that they throw up in the movie. Not a fan. Not really a fan. A little oh. too on the nose. I found them a bit funny. I, could, yeah. I was going to ask everyone what their karaoke song was. Oh, um, I can. I guess I could say. I guess I it shook me all night long. I've done a few times. ACDC. dc um, I've Freak on a Leash is probably the other one.
0: I want to hear the uh,
1: the breakdown interlude bit. Oh, well, like I can do it.
0: Oh, I can do uh, it. I, I, <laughs> that that's the outro of the episode coming at you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, uh, well, hang on, th- Scott needs to answer now. I need, I need Scott's karaoke song.
2: Me. Yeah. I'm sorry, I got distracted. I was looking up. Thomas Ian Griffith was the double actor that played the fake Bond that got killed at the beginning of Triple X. Has he done anything else since? Uh, well, he was in the Karate Kid part three, and he was a, he had a starring role in the fourth season of Cobra Kai. So that's why we're all talking about it again. Wasn't he the lead vampire in John Carpenter's Vampires? Yes, he was. Okay, yeah. Um, sorry, my go to karaoke song? God, I haven't done karaoke in ages. Uh, maybe stand by me. With The caveat that I don't sing, I can't sing very well. I usually just do it to annoy my children.
1: It's a good one. Yep,
2: stand
0: by me. I, I will always go with Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by Elton John.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: I don't sound good singing it, but I give it a shot, you
1: know.
2: Fair enough.
0: Go on, Cam.
1: So... Uh, Yeah, just a couple other minor things. Um, I did appreciate when Ruby Rose did the Octopussy, like wrap up herself in doing the sniper position and then roll back down. Very reminiscent of a scene in Octopussy. I enjoyed that. And just lastly, there was just a funny little line that I thought that Becky had where she compares Vin Diesel to the Terminator, but then says, but not like the Arnold Schwarzenegger, the second one, the liquid metal. And then I was like, what an odd thing to say to compare yeah. his physique to Robert Patrick.
2: Yeah, that, that sort of <laughs> made me pause as well. I was like, Robert Patrick? I'm thinking it's a mistake that was so charming and specific that I just left it in.
0: You look like a generic white dude with no muscles whatsoever. Oh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, Anything else for his cat? No, that is pretty much everything I had. I will just say one thing, though. I thought it was really smart of this movie to essentially be a chase film and not kind of do the... I think the first one could sometimes feel slow, where it was just him hanging around waiting for the villain to do something. This one, it was just full momentum. So even though the plot is gibberish, you're just racing through everything because of the, the way the film's set up.
2: Yeah, no checking the hotels in this movie.
1: <laughs> no. Nope. Um, the only thing I had that I, left I hadn't mentioned
0: is why on earth is one of the team's skill that he's a DJ?
1: Oh, yeah, I was going to bring that up. And it never pays off, really, except nope. for that one moment where he gets a crowd to assemble. The guy who crashes cars, like, he's also kind of doesn't do a lot, but at least he does something occasionally. Whereas, like, DJ dude, I, I don't know. I, I kept forgetting his name, so I just called him DJ Lethal. Yeah, his name was Nix. He was played by Chris Wu. So I mean, he's there to, I guess, to form a pair with Rory uh, McCann's Tennyson Torch um, driver character. But that's it. Like they're there to have that kind of back and forth dynamic. But Nix does nothing. No. It's weird. To, it's also weird to see uh, Rory McCann in something where
0: he's actually got a bit of range. Yeah. Well, I think that brings us to the question that we always ask: Is this film making the knock list? Now Scott has been a guest before. So I won't explain it. He's going to be put on the spot. Cam, has any of the
1: X films made The Knocklist so far? They have not. No, they have not uh, earned their spot next to, you know, movies like North by Northwest, uh, GoldenEye, <laughs> Three Days of the Condor, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Born Supremacy. <laughs> Some might say classics. I don't know. Sure. Um, but Scott,
0: I need to know. Is the Xander Zone finally going to be on the
2: knock list? I adore this film. I think it's, it's unique. I think it's an interesting example of how to adapt franchises to a changing world. I think it's an example of how to do diversity and inclusivity correctly, which is basically just do it and make sure everybody's fun. I think it's a terrific action adventure comedy. I don't think it belongs on the all-time list of classic spy pictures. Um, So I'm going to vote no on the knock list. And we should note, actually, you came on
1: previously, your first time, to do the parallax view, which did make the list. Yes. And so, yeah, when you're comparing triple X against the parallax view, (laughs) there's a difference. There's a gulf there. (laughs) I may
2: be a fan, but I'm not delusional.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's good that you can have that distance. And and be objective about it. That's why you're a, a, a true film critic. So I appreciate that.
2: Now, if looks good kill, on the other hand, that's a more complicated conversation. Oh. That's right. That was a very
1: influential film on uh, 11-year-old me, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Um. Well, that's one note. Cam, what about you? I mean, I said up front, it's very much like a B-movie, kind of trashy action movie that's a lot of fun to watch. But... Plotting-wise, we've said it. It's a mess. It has some issues, so it's a no for me, but one I would actually maybe put it next to on the shelf, in terms of movies I enjoyed that I don't think are all-timers, was the Man from U.N.C.L.E. film, where it's that star chemistry, some really good set pieces. It kind of loses its way. It spots the back half is a bit of a mess, but it has an energy about it that's just fun to sit through. So, fun movie, but no, not quite that's two no's and therefore uh, finally i guess my vote is pointless but
0: i will say it anyway much as i'd like to have some Xander cage on the knock list i just don't think it was meant to be unfortunately i i, I love vin diesel I, and i quite like the triple x films the first one means a lot to me to young scott um it was, it was the right time but that it came out i was the exact target audience for this film but is it best of all time spy films no sir I don't think the list would have any credibility left if it made that list, so uh, it, it's a no. I mean, I guess that means there's no dubstep on the knock list. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> there's still some Mission Impossible films, I think, I have a little bit of that in there. So, uh, well, another day. Yeah, another day. But uh, there you go, folks. Three no's, and as such, Three: The Return of Xander King is not making the knock list but the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Scott Mendelsohn, you came back, you triumphant hero, you. Now, I need to know firstly, where people can find more from you.
2: Uh, I write for Forbes, Forbes Forbes.com you Google some variation of Scott Mendelsohn, Forbes, the ticket booth. Um, I'm on Twitter Uh, and that's, I mean I have a Facebook account that's mostly just for Family photos and cat pictures and things of that nature. Uh, if you want discourse' I'm at tw- that's at Twitter.
0: so yeah, that's basically where I am. well yeah you know you are a big fan of this film in in some ways, so if people are disagreeing with your thoughts, they can find you directly on Twitter <laughs> uh, and they can and you can argue them about Triple X and I will pay to see that argument so that that'll be fun, but I think before you leave us, I just also need to know. And, of course, we'll have links to, in the show notes below to your writing on Forbes and to your Twitter page. But you picked Triple x Three last time as something you wanted to talk about. Give us another spy film that you're passionate about off top of your if you can think of one, and we'll note it down for the future. I just, I just
2: did a few minutes ago.
1: I, okay, I, I've, I'm flashing back. Very instrumental to an 11-year-old me. Oh, it looks good kill.
2: Yeah, if you're up for it.
1: Oh, hell yes. I am so glad that there's a guest that wants to do his looks good kill. I really thought that would be me and Scott together, Scott scratching his head going, I have no idea what this movie is, and me being like, let me tell you why it was so important to me, Scott.
0: (laughs) So, I I have no, I genuinely have no idea what that film is. That's why it went out of my head.
2: That's definitely another film where the supporting cast completely outclasses the protagonist.
1: You know what? Uh, You know, Scott Hardy, host Scott Hardy, um, the movie to compare it to, really, was the 1990s answer to Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. So who's the who's the Anthony Edwards of it
2: all? Richard Grieco. Wow. I know, but everyone okay. else is great. And he's you know he keeps his head above water.
0: I went into Gotcha not expecting much. And I got a, just a bit more than that. So I, I'm open to, to to try this this film. Um, I, I, We will add it to our list and uh, hopefully have you back on to discuss it.
2: And if you find yourself enjoying it and decide, gosh, I want more of that. It was actually remade as a G-rated cartoon for children entitled Cars 2.
1: <laughs>
2: True.
0: <laughs> Cars 2 is definitely on the list. Okay, I, I think we've got you down for... If looks could kill, I think it's definitely your film, Scott. So, congratulations. We'll be seeing you soon. I'm
2: bringing the classics.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm getting a reputation. you need to bring me on to do like the spy who came in from the cold or something.
0: Ugh. We're not going to give you prestige. You had prestige when you came on the first time. We gave you the parallax for you. That's true. I had, I blew it. Now it's just the dregs. Now it's just the dregs.
2: <laughs> I, need, I had prestige and I asked for schlock and slop. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs>
0: Well, Scott, I want to thank you once again for joining us. You um, Just thank you for giving us the time and, and chatting to us about this film. It's been a blast. Absolutely a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, there you go. That was our episode on Triple X Three: The Return of Xander Cage. I want to again thanks, Scott Mendelson, for joining us.
1: Uh, well, we've already got his next episode set up, by it sounds of it. Yes, and I was just bowled over when he said that that was the movie he wanted to do. I really I really was. I wasn't faking that. I was genuinely pulled over. So it's, it is a spy film? It is, yeah. Oh big time. Yeah. Okay. Is it popular? I've never heard of it. Oh hell no.
0: <laughs> oh. Good. <laughs> next week on Spy Hearts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah, well there you go. So um Cam, what are we talking about
1: next week? Well, um we are tackling the nineteen eighty three Margot Kidder film Trenchcoat, which I believe was a Disney production. It may in some ways be a little bit like a If Looks Could Kill or a Gotcha where it was sort of this, you know, programmer 90-minute comedy in the spy world. I haven't seen it, but I feel like it's one that at least some people out there listening to this show probably caught on TV back in the day. Yeah, it's definitely in the same sort of vein when we pull out these sort of
0: 80s and 90s films of the Jumpin' Jack flashes, the Cloak and Daggers, although they're more popular, I would say, than Trenchcoat is. Uh, Maybe like Condor Man, that sort of thing. There, there is definitely an audience for that film. They've, they've seen it before, but for, for a lot of people, this would be a first time watch. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to tackle it. Actually, I, you know, Margot Kidder. I loved Superman growing up, so I'm interesting to see her in something else. I've never seen her in anything other than Lewis Lane.
1: Yeah, I'm a big Margot Kidder fan. I think she's fantastic in Superman stuff and also in Brian De Palma's Sisters. So I'm really excited to see her in something else. And it also stars Robert Hayes, the lead from Airplane One and Two. That's who I think
0: of him every time. So it should be an interesting film. I'm looking forward to tackling it. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Trenchcoat and join us next week. Now, don't forget to stick around later in the week. We'll be talking to Scott Frazier, the writer of this week's film, Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage. Our final time most likely talking about the world of Xander Cage. Uh, And it's a great interview, and uh, check it out. And, of course, don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, remember, kick some ass, get the girl, and look dope while you do it.